The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us and great to have my co-hosts here, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. This is our last episode of the year and we've prepared a good one for you. So let me turn it over to Phil to kick us off. Thanks, John. And I just want to say real quickly too, uh, how nice it was to be uh, in person with a bunch of you at the Latticework conference earlier this week. We're recording this on December 15th, so a couple days ago now. But uh, also really appreciate uh, several of you had you know kind comments and compliments and suggestions about the podcast. So really, really appreciate that. It, it, was, it was heard and appreciated. So just wanted to say thank you for that. And so I thought with this being our last podcast of the year, I thought we'd do kind of a year in review episode, not because that's never been done before and it's such a novel, brilliant idea, but just because I think we'll look back at 2022 as being kind of a landmark year in ways that are hard to appreciate in real time because they've all happened so quickly. We've had a lot of history jammed into this year, and I think it's going to take time to digest it. And also because, you know, it's funny, we were just talking about this before we started recording. While Howard Marks was giving his presentation on on Tuesday morning, I think it was during or shortly thereafter that day that his his memo, his la- his latest memo came out about the sea change, uh, his words that he perceives un- as being underway, kind of in the world in the investment world right now. And I agree. I think there's just all sorts of trends that are coming to a head and things that are that are changing. The the, the land is shifting right underneath our feet. And so I think it's worth just pausing to reflect about all the the things that have happened and all the crazy stuff that's happened. And then I have a few takeaways or or lessons learned at the end of it. So I'll 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 run down my little list here. Hopefully only take a few minutes. I know Elliot has a few that he wants to chime in with. And then uh I'll go back and and we can talk about some of the lessons learned as well. So I think, you know, it, it's hard to believe, but as we sit here on the 15th of December that earlier this year, not even a full year ago, there was no such thing as the war in Ukraine. There hadn't been an interest rate hike yet. Inflation was not yet at the tip of everyone's tongue. Uh, China was much less of a topic of conversation. Uh, U.S. midterm elections were still seemingly far off in the distance. And now they're all you know, well entrenched in our popular mentality. And, you know, Lurking in the background of all that too was COVID. I mean, it's hard to imagine how different the COVID environment was uh, just as recently as, as earlier this year. You, you know, we'll see. Hopefully, as we enter what 
will soon be the fourth year of the pandemic that things really do finally recede into memory. We'll see that the Chinese just now relaxing their zero COVID policy, I think, has some significant impacts that are still yet to become. But I, I don't think it's I don't think it would be smart to lose sight of the fact that COVID was a generational disruption. And and so 2022 will hopefully mark the the end of the acute phase of the pandemic, but I don't think we're anywhere close to having felt the end of the impacts. We still don't know the ultimate consequences of this. You know, I mean, it, it, it seems like ages ago that we had, you know, what was it? February 23rd, I think it was, was the peak in the S&P 500. And, you know, not even four weeks later, we were down by 30 six percent or whatever it was just a record record fast crash followed by a record fast rebound all the way back to the highs by august i mean it wasn't normal during that period of time to have the s p 500 you know go up 18 percent, go up 28 percent in back-to-back years when when conditions were so horrible and so that's one of the things that i and we'll come back to talk about this later but it wasn't normal to have those conditions then so I don't know why we should be expecting things to be so good forever. I mean, I one of my big takeaways from 2022 in terms of the market conditions we've had is that I'm just shocked that it wasn't worse. And look, that's not to sugarcoat the fact that this probably was the worst year ever recorded in the bond markets. And defining worst is obviously a somewhat arbitrary assumption. But you know, the the Bloomberg previously Barclays previously Lehman aggregate bond index would would render a pretty clear verdict on that, at least going back several decades. And, uh, you know, look, it, it's just stunning when you sit here and think about the fact that interest rates were, you know, bordering on zero. And after several 75 basis point increases later, we're now well above four and a quarter. You know, we had mortgage rates go from around three and in many cases under three to over seven briefly, all in the space of eight or 10 months. You know, I, I'm, I'm surprised we didn't have an even more significant housing market cri- price correction, an even more significant bond market sell-off, and an even a far more significant equity market correction. Because I think one of the other things that I'll look back on on this period of time, in 2022 potentially being that sea change moment, was that this may be the defining year in which we finally started to burn off some of the absolutely insane speculation and speculative excess that is built up in the markets. There was actually, everyone knows that I have such a love-hate relationship with with Twitter, but one of the things I love about it are the the people that are, that have a legitimate voice that that occasionally use that platform to to share their opinions. And a couple of days ago, Jim Chanos gave uh, an interview on on a Twitter Spaces event where he was talking about you know, his experience in the market, he's been doing this for over 40 years. And he said, he's told all of his, and he wrote this in his letter earlier this year, but he said 2021 was the most speculative year in markets in his 40 plus year career, just a witch's brew of insanity. And, you know, we've talked a lot on here about, I, I, I had a whole episode, I think it was in 2021, might've been 2020. I'll have to go back and look about the golden age of fraud, which again is his term. And is is it time to revisit that? Because we've had Theranos, Wirecard, now FTX, Nikola, Luck and Coffee. I mean, these, and to say nothing of the broader, you know, crypto, NFT, meme stock, you know, all that nonsense, right? GameStop, AMC, um, you know, it, it's it's hard to really wrap your head around everything that's happened and how speculative it really was. And, 
he's got his list of causes. I've got my list of causes. We can all agree that it's some combination of, you know, crowd psychology bordering on total delusion, you know, lots of cheap or free money floating around out there, uh, you know, crazy knock-on effects of the pandemic and people being bottled up at home, a shift in the popular psychology and the previous taboos associated with gambling and speculation falling away to a certain extent. But that's what you ta- it takes. I mean, even just outside of the frauds that we've seen, I mean, we'll look back at things like Peloton, which I've harped on a million times, the SaaS stocks trading at 20, 30, 40 times sales, Carvana, WeWork, Bed Bath & Beyond, all the SPAC booms that we, the SPAC boom that we saw, there were, you know, the dozens or hundreds of SPACs being raised, many of which are now in liquidation and many of which were the completed deals trading at disastrous levels. Uh, the cannabis stocks, all the gaming stocks, the, the buy now, pay later stocks, the electric vehicle stocks. I mean, this was not a normal period by any stretch of the imagination. And I think we'll look back at things like, you know, the 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 crypto bowl, right? The Super Bowl commercials of February 2022, the infamous Matt Damon commercials, Larry David's shilling for FTX, you know, the the FTX logo all over the Major League Baseball umpires, the political contributions, the renaming of the Miami Heat arena, uh, you know, Peter Thiel's comments about Warren Buffett, all this kind of stuff I think will be etched into the history books in a major, major way. And we will be talking about this years and years from now. In a more uh, practical sense, I am fascinated by what is going to happen yet to the U.S. housing market. Uh, Again, it's obviously tied very closely to interest rates. And I think it's worth noting, again, that this is probably the steepest ever jump in a short period of time, call it one year, um, in, in financing costs for a home. And it it is effectively shut down and frozen big chunks of the housing market. You have something like 70% of houses with a mortgage have a rate at or under 4%. Now, the prevailing rate today is probably closer to six and a half. It briefly crossed seven. But you know that doesn't change the fact that you still have a very old and aging housing stock, a somewhat undersupplied housing stock, particularly in some markets, and in a lot of ways, demographics that are favorable, people that want and need houses. At the same time, you have declining affordability and affordability where it's really quite poor to begin with. I mean, we all know how expensive it was to live in San Francisco or New York previously, but now it's really expensive to live in places where previously it was much more affordable and, and rents have gone way up too. So it's not like there's a you know huge disparity between the cost to rent and the cost to buy. So people are, are really kind of stuck and it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't housing market. And uh, I don't have a strong prediction as to how that's exactly going to resolve itself. I certainly don't know how it's going to resolve in the next 12 months. That's for sure. Uh, But the implications are pretty significant and I'll be fascinated to see how they play out. You know, the other, the the last thing I'll, I'll add to my list here is that I think we're coming off a period of almost unprecedented allocator demand in their preferences for private equity and venture capital. And we talked on the, uh, the FTX episode we did a couple of weeks ago about crypto, which by the way, that also seems like a long time ago. And since then, not only has uh, it gotten even more bizarre, which I didn't really think was possible at the time, but Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested uh, in the Bahamas and uh, indicted on eight counts of various levels of fraud, 
uh, including, you know, you know, I think it's it's worth noting that one of the counts of fraud was uh, defrauding the Federal Election Commission of the United States by um, making illegal campaign donations, uh, which I think is a particularly interesting charge that a lot of people are not necessarily focused on. It, it seems like a a very long time ago, but as we talked about on that episode, it's it's just absolutely fascinating that the best venture capital firm in the in the country, and and I think that everyone would agree that the U.S. has the best venture capital industry in the world. You know, that Sequoia is as good as it gets, and and as I said then, it's worth repeating now. This is not an ad hominem criticism of anyone at Sequoia or Sequoia even as a firm, because. These types of things do happen over time, and that's why they're so fascinating and worth studying is how these brilliant, successful people can stumble into this kind of stuff. But look, I understand the argument that they thought it could be worth 10x or 20x or 50x where they were putting the money in because they were, quote, only putting in a quarter billion dollars. But someone at Sequoia had to wire that money to, to a company that was not FTX. Right. And someone at Sequoia had to realize that there was no accounting system in place. And someone at Sequoia had to realize that not only did they not have board representation, that there was no board representation. And someone at Sequoia had to realize that the whole thing just didn't smell right and had an enormously high or much higher than should be acceptable chance of being a total fraud and a zero. And and yet here we are. And my prediction would be that that won't immediately change anything. Sequoia's reputation precedes itself, it will not it will not be torn to shreds overnight. But I do start to wonder if the massive allocator preference when rates were really low and you know the the David Swenson era that was ushered in under far different circumstances 20 and 30 years ago led to this just explosion of allocations to private equity and venture capital firms. And and to borrow the term, I, I apologize, I forget who coined this phrase, but it's absolutely brilliant. The volatility laundering that these private capital pools have been providing to the allocators by, you know, investing in companies and then pretending like they don't ever have to mark it down, um, and and thereby ignoring the the volatility that happens in the real world and is certainly evident every day in the public markets. I do wonder if that's going to potentially start to change. I wouldn't bet very much on that, but if if it was ever going to start to change, the odds of it happening now are a lot higher than they were even just a few months ago. So I'll stop with that. We'll come back to my implications or further lessons learned because I know, Elliot, you've got some some good ones to talk about as well. Yeah. And you know, that volatility laundering phrase, it sounds like something Cliff Asnes would say. That's my guess as to who that was from. I kind of love it. I'll look it up. Yeah, that could be. I'll look it up real quick. It it almost has to be just just by how often he tweets about, um, you know, the marks in private equity. But, you know, I just wanted to start by uh, emphasizing Phil's point of how great it was to see so many of you in person. And by the way, that includes Phil, because he and I, since we started doing this, we'd never seen each other in person. And, you know, we probably had only met in passing beforehand. And yet I feel like I think that's right. It was great. Yeah, yeah, I feel like I know you as well as anyone in the world these days. And uh, it was it was awesome to sit down at the same table and get to talk. Um, And I wanted to thank Tyler for doing an awesome job organizing the event. Like every speech was fascinating. And uh, everything was really well put together. So that that was um, a really good experience. And it was great to, you know, just experience that sort of event in, in in person. So, and thanks to John for, for building the community. Um, now on to like some of, some of the things I'd been thinking about this year. Um, one point that I'd like to 
make overarching everything is how unprecedented these times are. And I think, you know, it goes without saying that all times are unprecedented. Typically, you know, there's some rhymes with history. But I almost think every single economic number we look at for the past few years, without the context of having lived through the first coordinated global shutdown of life uh, ever, as far as anyone knows, right? You you almost need to put an asterisk next to every single economic stat, kind of like home runs in the steroid era, and maybe give a little more time to reflect on it than than opining. And I think that's one of the challenges the markets have these last few years. You put meaning to things where it's really hard to know the meaning. And I think it's similar with the lessons you'd want to take out of an epic like this. There are certain timeless lessons, but there are certain lessons that you know, might be the wrong ones because of how freaking dramatic this whole period has been and how emotional it's been on different levels. Um, With that, I do think one of the most important notes to make about the year 2022 is that this is probably, not probably, this is the bookend of the COVID era as far as I'm concerned. And you could emphatically say that now that we sit here at the end of the year with China moving past COVID zero. Um, I think they were the last holdouts. But if you'll recall, we started this year with the Omicron wave. Um, Schools were very much not normal for our kids. Um, We were not necessarily with our families for the holidays last year. And we were still avoiding dining indoors in certain quarters. I know it's not the same universal truths for everyone, but there was still a decent part of the Western world that was under lockdown at this time last year and at a, you know, slightly more forward time last year. Um, And, you know, all that is thankfully a thing of the past right now, but it also feels like a lifetime ago, yet it was still very much this year. You know, I kind of had forgotten that the Winter Olympics even happened this year. I was just like looking through some of the things I thought about (laughs) this year. I thought of that Um, one too. It's crazy, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. By the way, like I was reflecting on it. It was in a town that didn't even have snow, which is kind of crazy. But no, it was all fake. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. The Winter Olympics were this year. Um, Elon Musk bought Twitter this year. Like who would have thought that at the beginning of the year? And I, I know we already think about Elon as, as as Twitter's owner, but like, you know, that was that was a pretty dramatic development in the early parts of last year. Um, one major global event that I feel like when I was when I was looking back on things that I'd commented on along the way. Um, uh, Abe in Japan was assassinated during the summer. Mm. I feel like that was a major freaking event. And I don't know, I, I'd like forgotten about it until I even looked through it, anything. And, and I, I know part of that's because we're sitting an ocean away, but that really does feel like a pretty dramatic and major event. Um, but so those, those are some global things, but I want to talk about markets. We came into the year with Kathy Wood promising a 40% five-year CAGR. Um, that is very much a thing of the past. I don't know what she'd update that to today, but like, just to give you a sense of how much the mentality's changed toward markets, I think um, you know the typical conversation on Twitter is about what real assets you want to be buying, not about what uh, growth tech stock might change the world from here. Um I apologize for that. I can't mute that phone, but the rest of the things I can. Um, the uh, 
COVID winners, right? I, I know I talked about COVID. Um, the COVID winners, I think you can emphatically say were the biggest losers of the COVID period in the stock market. Um, and I've been reflecting on this quite a bit. And I think No Sunk Costs on Twitter had perhaps the earliest lens into this, very early during the mania. And part of what happened is that the margins were so freaking good for these companies that it invited so much competition and there was so much capital that venture piled in with competitive money. And all this started working at the same time as comps got much tougher and the world reopened. And so it was a really powerful negative effect on these companies. And yeah, I was not right about more than a couple of them. Um, Crude oil this year. I mean, what a wild trajectory. At one point, it was up over 60% on the year, past 110 for the first time in over a decade. I'm talking about WTI just because, you know, again, my my dummy American view. Um, But now it's flirting with being down on the year. It was down as much as double digits, maybe as recently as last week. Hard to keep track of those exact numbers as things are moving so fast. But, um, you know, that, that whole move feels like it took place over the course of years. And, you know, we're not quite at 12 months yet. Um, how can I forget that the euro and US dollar hit, I mean, hit, it, it, it went past parity this year. Um, that's like 20 plus years of the euro being the stronger currency and all of a sudden it reversed. And we had a day where the GBP got to parity with the dollar. I mean, forgive me the liberty of like 1.03 being called parity, but um, what a wild year it was. Um, You know, the irony of FTX and SBF happening in the same month, blowing up in the same month that Elizabeth Holmes finally gets convicted uh, for Theranos. I'm glad Phil, I I knew you'd point that one out. Um, Some other things I've been thinking about a lot lately, though. I, I had the privilege of uh, dinner with Chuck Rice the other night, and he eagerly, enthusiastically came to the table with a with a stat he wanted to cite. He said, you very rarely get to put out a stat that I could say 100% of the time this happened. So 100% of the time, the five-year Kager in the Russell 2000 was sub 5%. The forward returns over the next three years have averaged 15% annualized. And who knows what the future will look like? You know, all caveats apply, but the Russell's going to end this year at a four and a half percent five-year Kager, uh, were it to end the year right here, right now. And so I think that's something interesting to think about, especially when you overlay the fact that the S&P 600, and I know I used the Russell 2000 in the past, but you could now look at the S&P 600 and point out that the, and it doesn't have the composition problems of the Russell 2000. The 600 has an emphasis on profitability in contrast to the 2000, which anyway, the PE ratio would strip out unprofitable companies. But the S&P 600 PE ratio has hit financial crisis lows. Um, and I think that says a lot. The liquidity came out of the small cap space months before the rest of the market. Small caps peaked in February 2021, had a really rough way from there through the end of 2021. And, you know, 2022 has been, as we know, much worse. Um, So, you know, past being rough, 
often leads to future being brighter. Who knows? But um, it does feel hard to make the optimistic case for anything from here right now. Um, Phil pointed out that this was the worst year for the bond market, but it was also the worst year ever for the 60-40 portfolio, which I think is really dramatic and really says a lot about what's happened over the course of this year. For the prior decade, any time that uh, bonds had a bad month or quarter, stocks tend, tended to have a very good month or quarter, right? Risk on, risk off was, was the theme there. Um, and this December were to end today, again, recording on December 15th, would be the first month where the uh, strength in bonds um, was, came alongside weakness in equities. It would be the first month where the end of the month would see a rebalancing from bonds into equities. That had been kind of a calibrating, a smoothing effect for both the 60-40 portfolio, but also equity markets from 2012 through uh, 2020. And that had been absent this entire year. Um, will 2020, will December of 2022 mark a change to past trends where the story behind that is we go from fearing inflation to fearing the recession that will come with crushing inflation? That might be only the future knows. I'm not going to make a prediction here. Uh, but, you know, a lot of that comes down to the Fed. And, you know, it feels like it was way more than a year ago when the Fed first raised rates because we've done these 75 bit things so many times and we just did 50. But it was March of this year when we finally lifted off zero. I feel like I was maybe a decade younger at the time. Um, but it, it was interesting to reflect back on, like in December of 2021, the central tendency for PC inflation uh, in the Fed's uh, forecast summary was 2.2 to 3% for 2022. And in October, the last data point we have for that, it was 6% on PC inflation. Um, it'll be lower in December, but you know, in June, it got to basically 7%. And yesterday, the Fed forecast PCE of 2.9 to 3.5 for the coming year. Um, so, you know, if you're a betting man, basically the best bet is that it won't come in between 2.9 and 3.5. And as Howard Mark said at Latticework this week, the Fed can't predict what the Fed's going to do. So, like, why should we? Um, it's so true. And I, I think it's, um, you know, really interesting. So th those are some of the things I've been thinking about. And I'll turn it back to you guys. Yeah, so to circle back, you were 100% correct. As usual on that one, I should have known off the top of my head, it was Cliff Asness at AQR that coined the phrase volatility <laughs> laundering. I think it was earlier this year. It looks like maybe June of this year was the first time that was uh, said or written by him. And it's such a good turn of phrase. Uh, I'm surprised he didn't do it even earlier. But It is. Phrase, uh, yeah, and Howard Marks twice cited in his talk about how PE was the kind of poster child of the move out on the risk curve in the professional investing world. And I thought that was interesting too. Mm. Um, volatility laundering. I mean, uh, you know what we should have had on our freaking list? The B-REIT halting redemptions, right? Where you have this yeah. Uh, yeah. private REIT that's, and I'm doing air quotes, but you can't see it, up in the mid single digits year to year, year over year, when every REIT's down 20 to 30% of the year. Um, the beauty of volatility laundering right there. Yeah, for sure. So I'll uh I'll I'll echo what you said at the end too, which is that, you know, one of the things, this is obviously a pretty 
it's almost a sappy exercise to sit here and say, oh, what did we learn this year? Let's look back and remember the year that was or whatever. And I, I get it. You know, that said, I think it is worth spending some time at the end of the year or even maybe a little bit more frequently than that, just reflecting about what's happened and, and what's gone right, what's gone wrong, what you can learn. And the problem with this type of this this look back and retrospective thing is it just triggers the itch, the need for people to forecast. And you get all these idiots out chiming on you know, TV or Twitter or whatever about what's going to happen next year. And the problem, of course, is that none of them put up their track record about what they said last year, right? I mean, at this time last year, certainly me included, but there was very little talk about, wow, we're going to have 85 Fed hikes next year and mortgage rates are going to more than double and all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, my number one lesson and implication from looking back at all the crazy nonsense that's happened in the last year or two or three is that forecasting is really hard. And the only way to combat that in the, at least in the business and, and financial sense of it is to have humility, to have the courage to use a range or a probability instead of a discrete point estimate and to insist on using some room for error to have that margin of safety because I'm wrong, you're going to be wrong. And if you just have this total cocksure attitude that, you know, you're right and, and the world is always wrong and, and you know, the S&P 500 is going to be at this level out to four decimal places by June or next January or whatever you come up with. It's just a recipe for disaster and it's going to make it. That's, it, it seems like this is the type of world where that is finally going to be punished. Um, you know, again, I, I look forward as to what, if you take the sea change framework that Howard Marks put out on Tuesday. And yeah, one of the big lessons there is what worked in the last one year, three years, five years, 10 years, even going back over the last 40 years when we saw this basically nonstop decline in interest rates. If you take what worked in that environment, it may not work now, right? If Even if you just adjust for what he's saying is kind of a, a normalized, level of interest rates in the two to four range, you know, not zero to two, but just two to four, you know, we're not talking about a massive, massive difference, but it's enough to engender that sea change, right? And if that's true, um, and I I have no reason to put out a better forecast or or range than that, but my assertion would be that if that's true, and we are in that world and in that range going forward, that things like due diligence will matter again, valuation will matter again. Judgment, investment, good old-fashioned investment judgment will matter again. Credit and distressed debt will matter again. And balance sheets will matter again. And any CFOs who didn't refinance their liability stack in the last two or three years are going to be looking for a job. Uh, you know, Concepts that have been kind of ignored, like the duration of your investment portfolio will matter again. Um, you know, in- Inflation obviously matters again right now, but I don't think it's uh, again, I, I I didn't have a crystal ball a year ago. I don't have a crystal ball now, but I don't think inflation will be in the back of everyone's mind again 12 months from now. I think it will probably take longer than that to recede from, you know, kind of front page news, uh, you know, reshoring geopolitical conflict, labor issues, all this kind of stuff is probably going to matter again as we look forward into the into the, the wild unknown. Well, I was just about to do some forecasting, but Phil, it's good you nipped that in the bud. Well, go so, ahead, John. Don't let me stop. <laughs> let's hear it. Let's hear it. That's okay. No. Um, and 
you know what I was going to say anyway, when it comes to things like inflation uh, and interest rates. You know, I think one of the one of the kind of things that stand out for me when it comes to this past year is just how much it has been about the macro. And um, that may not change anytime soon. I mean, you have um, on the political and international relations front, obviously, the uh, Russian attack on Ukraine and, uh, you know, implications for the security architecture of the world, as well as some um, economic implications when it comes to energy security for Europe when it comes to food security and all of those things obviously also feed into inflation whenever you have supply disruptions that's gonna uh, make itself felt um, and you know we we still don't know are we on a de-escalating slope now or still on an escalating slope when it comes to Ukraine uh, because um, there is really no possible agreement um, in sight uh, at the moment. And then, you know, also on the macro side, obviously, um, inflation and interest rates, you guys have talked about that uh, plenty, so I don't need to go into that. Um, the only thing I'd say is, to me, if interest rates are still running materially below inflation, you're not really going to solve inflation uh, that way. And I'm also not seeing, you know, central bank balance sheets really shrinking um, at this point. So to me, even though everyone is, uh, you know, yelling at, at the Fed, to me, it's still fairly accommodative in terms of um, where we're at, because you still cannot really hold a government paper um, and even maintain purchasing power. And companies, if they can increase pricing at the rate of inflation and they're paying interest at whatever the rates are now, they're still they're still gonna do pretty well. So we'll have to we'll just have to see how those things shake out. But to me, it's not very clear that, um, you know, we have really solved uh, the inflation problem. And, um, you know, we'll we'll just have to see if we get something like stagflation and, and how long this persists. Um, but obviously, if interest rates had to go even quite a bit higher, um, we could be in for some really rough uh, economic times. And, you know, then what I kind of just look at... Uh, with regard to this past year is just that um, the air has been coming out of a lot of bubbles. Um, you know, like uh, you can you see it in uh, the price of the ARK, um, you know, ETF that's down massively. And, uh, and it's, you know, the 40% CAGR uh, prediction that was so irresponsible. Um, you know, that's obviously uh, not anywhere close to being realized. And, you know, when you look at crypto and FTX, people are still holding on, you know, the Bitcoin maximalists are saying, well, maybe this is good for Bitcoin because now that's really going to be the only game in town. To me, 
the whole crypto bubble is just on a on a deflating path and especially if markets stay challenging um you know that that whole story may pretty much end uh at some point in the in the foreseeable future and i think most importantly for us as value oriented investors is that investing the old fashioned way is no longer viewed as idiotic and behind the times um i think you know looking at companies and what kind of owner earnings they have what kind of free cash flow they throw off um that's back in in vogue and i think it just kind of goes to that saying there's nothing new under the sun so you know money losing companies can fly high for a while when financing is readily available and everyone's believing the story but when that stops, um, things can turn around very, very quickly. We've seen it with companies like Carvana. Um, you know, I've been looking at some companies that are down massively, um, where I've basically been hoping that that I can find true bargains. Um, one example that I've looked at just recently, and I think it's hitting new all-time lows today, is Farfetch which seems to be a, a really good business. But there is still no cash flow. I think it might even still be negative. And you look at the balance sheet, and it's a balance sheet that was put together when financing was readily available, and there's debt on that balance sheet. So how do you know um, what the equity holders are going to get in a company like that that I you know, that is probably a pretty good business that'll be around for a long time and keep growing. But will there be a restructuring in the meantime? And so it's really hard to even, you know, invest in some ostensibly good businesses, growing businesses that are down 90 plus percent, but you just don't know whether the current equity holders are going to end up, um, you know, getting the value from what those businesses will do over the next decade. That's So John, I've never looked at Farfetch, but I just pulled it up here and I, you probably know this, but um, I literally don't know anything about it. it. The market cap's gone from over 23 billion to one, one and a half in the last like, you know, 22 months. Like it's pretty astounding. And to your point, like I pulled up this morning, a list of every publicly traded stock that's down more than 80%, 8-0 this year. And it's like multiple pages long. Like there are dozens and dozens. I, I'm sure there's a couple hundred stocks just listed in the US that are down more than 80% this year. But to your point, and, and this is what I was going to circle back on, back on anyway, this is a, a great segue. I don't know what to make out of like almost all of them. Like I haven't found a single one of them yet I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, that's like clearly baby thrown out with the bathwater kind of thing. Because to your point, they either never made money, or if they did, it was like a very temporary thing, either a COVID winner or just sort of like a favorable gust of wind. And now they're losing money again, or may lose money until the cows come home. And as in, as in the case with this one, Farfetch, they've levered up the balance sheet to a certain degree now, right? I mean, they half of the market cap is in debt right now. I mean, they've, they've, over three quarters of a billion dollars of debt right now on a company that's unprofitable. So whereas three or four years ago, there was no debt on the balance sheet. So 
you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen next year. I never feel like I know what's going to happen next year, but it's always worth pointing out where things stand today. And, you know, it, it, there's lots of problems and flaws with looking some looking at something like reported earnings or even reported cash flow. But the S&P 500, of all things, is still trading at like 20 times trailing net income, which is not that cheap, in my opinion, relative to interest rates and the outlook going forward. And, and to your point, John, a, a, another relevant you know, observation in this whole thing is that people are still holding on. They're still clinging to their prior beliefs, whether that's about, you know, certain stocks or stonks or crypto or whatever, right? Like I, at no point in the last year, even in the past couple of weeks, have I thought like, boy, this is capitulation. Like this is, everything's washed out now. This, this is like, everybody's panic and waving the white flag. Whereas, you know, look, I've, I've only lived through a few generational moments like that. But I distinctly remember thinking that in 2009 and even in 2010 and yet again in 2011 in certain assets that like this was pretty much maximum maximum fear and pessimism because anything that was negative to be said was being said and anything bad that could happen was being priced in and that, you know, sure, those bad things could happen and the price could always go lower, but that was pretty much you know, where we were at. And in this case, like, no, I think most of what's good is being priced in right now. And most of what's rosy is being priced in. So that's what makes this so weird is, you know, just like you've never had a situation like we currently have in the housing market where affordability is stretched and demand is pretty good and supply is really restrained or, or low. It's just a really weird setup. So I, you know, we may avoid a recession next year. I mean, that seems plausible to me. I don't know what kind of odds I'd give you. I'd probably, I, I, I'd probably sell it at twenty and buy it at forty percent chances or something like that. So I think it's you know pretty likely that we have one, but I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that we have a recession by any stretch of the imagination. But my issue becomes that like even if we do avoid some bad economic outcomes, like I don't see anything that's like as an asset class like screaming cheap right now. So. In terms of going back to Elliot's comments about forward returns, like, yeah, great, that's happened before. Maybe it'll happen again, but I don't know. The odds don't seem totally clear cut to me. Well, I mean, I think part of it is the cheapness is in small caps, right? So you look at the S&P 600. You can't argue with that how cheap it is. I think you'd have to make the case that it's actually over-earning to say there's some more pernicious problem on the on the level of cheapness. And I've been sifting through the down 80%. Uh, owning one has not been fun. Uh, and a couple uh, that flirt with it. Um, you know, it's not been fun, but I think there is definitely some baby out with bathwater. I think part of the problem when I reflect on this year is there were um, some companies who had earned the right to invest without delivering profit consistently, but there were a flood of pretenders in 2021. And the fact of the matter is every company is guilty until proven innocent. And some of these companies who had earned the right, you know, they got a little uh, over their skis in taking the benefits of COVID and investing aggressively, assuming that it'll last forever. And uh, now having to be like, whoa, okay, how do I get back to the model I was running before COVID where I was actually legitimately able to do this? Um, and I think that's challenging. And I think some companies have been very reluctant to make tough choices. 
But I, I, I do think one of the more interesting things with Twitter, some people have very different perspectives on this. But, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there were those saying, hey, Elon Musk is firing too many people and too many people are leaving. It's going to stop running tomorrow. And sure enough, it's still running. I think that's going to be an example that a lot of executives uh, get pushed on them by their investors around Silicon Valley about how much leaner a company can run without sacrificing its ability to deliver their services to to customers. Um, so I think they're, uh, you know... In terms of uh, the the title of Howard Marks' memo, sea change, I think that's one of the sea change effects that we're going to see play out over the next couple of years. And I do think, you know, if you look at the uh, capacity to generate profits at some of these companies, it's very different than the actuality they've been aiming for. And I certainly think there's some companies who are not going to adjust accordingly, but hey, over half the NASDAQ is down by over half as we sit here right now. And you could say some of it was a little crazy, but it, on average, unearning stocks actually have their lowest uh, price to sales ratios in, I think it was something like 40 years. So unearning stocks at a certain point, um, you know, there's an incentive to actually start making money. Um, and I definitely think that incentive is coming into play right now. So when you say unearning, you mean companies that are not profitable, like yeah. negative. Yeah, yeah. Not I mean, I think that's exactly it, though, unearning. right? Like, like you can't. I just am skeptical, right? I'm almost downright cynical. If you've been through the last five years, let alone the last ten, and you haven't, and this goes back a little bit to the Amazon comparison and debate of two weeks ago. But if you can't make money at some point over the last 10 years, I find it unlikely that you're going to magically flip a switch and make money over the next five to 10 years. I can give years. you dozens of companies that actually made money in 2021 and didn't this year because, or or made a lot less this year because their investments well, ramped. Well, that's why I said it has to be over the, a consistent basis, right? But yeah, not yeah. to kick... Not to kick somebody, but when they're down. But Carvana never made money. It never had a prayer of making money on any sort of sustained basis. And it's all of these companies that just say, don't look at that, look over here. And they have adjusted metrics for everything. And it's all about unit economics that don't matter because the scale is unrealistic unless they hit some you know, pie in the sky TAM percentage or whatever. And I just find that that's what I mean. Like Unless interest rates revert back to zero and the psychology swings back in their favor such that people are just clamoring for that sort of thing. That's not going to work, right? So I don't really find it all that enticing to say, okay, great, a bunch of these NASDAQ companies are down by 50% because they should have never gone up 2x in the first place. It was all Sure, but I'll a... make the case based on price to sales, right? You know, a lot of people are shitting on that as a metric. And um, I think part of that is because it was used to justify insanity at a certain point. but. The irony is today it's actually a very valuable signal because what price to sales tells you is what the expected and implied margin of this thing is in out years. And as things stand today, the biggest hurdle is do you trust management to make the choice to get at the margin that's necessary to justify that value? And with a lot of these companies, if you have the right management in place, you could actually get to much higher price to sales because their actual margin they could deliver on is meaningfully above what the market is saying they will deliver on. But choices 
tough choices don't get made when times are good. They get forced on you when times are bad. And that's where a lot of these companies are right now. Well, that I totally agree with. And I guess the only partial response I would have since I agree with it is that I think it's going to prove really hard for a lot of these management teams. And it would prove hard for me if I were one of these management teams. So this isn't a a veiled criticism by any stretch. But when you've come up on two, three, five, 10 years of free money and unlimited flowing venture capital and bass backwards quote unquote valuations based on price to sales or whatever, and you've been flying around on private jets and spending money like a drunken sailor, and it doesn't matter how unprofitable you are, or how much cash you burn. And now all of a sudden you have to flip the switch and, and prove that you can make it work. Uh, that's really, really hard. And uh, that's separate and distinct from what you said, which is like, yes, of course, Twitter was probably bloated and had too many people kind of lounging around on the corporate dime. And that's true of Facebook and everywhere else too, I'm sure. But I mean, that's true of, you know, most financial institutions and most big consumer goods companies. Like it's true of just big organizations in general. If you have five years of success or 10 years of success, you tend to get bigger and bloated and more bureaucratic. So I don't find that to be any sort of like massive revelation or realization that Elon Musk had where it's like, oh, wow, we can lay off a bunch of people at Twitter and the world's not going to add. Like, yeah, no kidding. Like that, that seems pretty obvious to me. But I do think it's going to prove really, really hard for these management teams that were drunk on big valuations and easy money to now like flip the switch. Like, you know, maybe the, and look, the appealing part is that there might be a Jeff Bezos laying in the weeds somewhere here that can pull this can pull this off. That 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 would be amazing and that would be super impressive. But I think it's going to take almost that level of acumen to do it. And I also think, I mean, you're probably going to see a lot of turnover at the top of some of these managements. Yeah. And sure. um yeah, I think one thing that's notable is since November, you've seen a market increase in the number of uh CEO transitions that have been announced. <laughs> and so but doesn't it drive you doesn't it drive you a little nuts as a shareholder then? to see that, okay, we hired this person as the CEO. This person delivered unprofitable, massive top-line growth for two years or 10 years or whatever and got loaded up on options. And we're going to fire that person and that person's going to make 10, 15, 25, $75 million. Like who knows, some ungodly amount of money. And then guess what? We're going to hire some new CEO and do the whole thing over again and either recut a giant stock option grant or a restricted share agreement or whatever. And the shareholders are just going to be diluted and diluted and diluted. For yeah. Nothing. Don't hate the player, hate the game, right? But, but play the game and no, pay attention to no, that. That's... There's some valuable signal in looking for the kinds of companies who are in position to change things and operate in an entirely different way. And I do think, you know, there's a lot of hurting effect that takes a place and hurting effect you know, in the bad things is bad, but hurting effect in good things. Like some companies need the cover of something like, you know, Facebook announces a riff finally, and a dozen others follow suit in Silicon Valley. You know, you're the smaller, um, call it follower, if you will, for lack of a better word. Um, You can't do certain things like that without threatening your own culture too much until you see the biggest, most prominent poster child do that. Um, And you can't push the conversation further until you see Elon Musk and uh, Twitter, what they've done. I've already seen people, um, 
you know, citing that to various management teams, like, hey, you know, why can't you run like this? So, I mean, it's more about observing what's there than than what would be best in an ideal world, I think. Sure, but it doesn't have to be an ideal world, right? It's just a common sense world. Like, there was never any reason for once Tesla had survived its several near-death experiences for the board of directors at Tesla, which had already signed off on Solar City and every other unforgivable crime against humanity in terms of corporate governance, to then say, you know what Elon really needs right now is a massive dose of stock options to incentivize him to the tune of tens of billions of dollars of additional wealth. And what did he do? He rode the stock way up. He cashed out the whole way down here. We're now back to where it was. So there will be, at the end of this, no net wealth creation for any of the remaining shareholders. It was just a massive transfer of wealth from the shareholders to Elon Musk for what? Uh, it, it doesn't have to be that way, right? I mean, I, that's a game that I absolutely can and will continue to hate on, right? I mean, yeah, you're not it, wrong. I'm, I'm kind of like not really thinking. I'm thinking about a lot of different companies other than Tesla, much smaller companies well, too. Well, sure, me too. That's why I'm, I'm thinking of all of them, right? I mean, I, you know, I was looking at a company the other day where, you know, there was an activist involved, and this is a seven, eight billion dollar market cap, and. They needed a new CEO. They fired their old CEO. So they bring in a new CEO and just give him the sun, moon, and stars with free first class air round trip airfare every week thrown in. It's like the guys, this is you're paying you're paying the guy twenty million dollars. Do we really need to throw in absolutely everything under the sun here to quote unquote incentivize this person who I guarantee you is not going to be around in three or four years? Like it's ridiculous. It doesn't need to be that way. You're not wrong. Meanwhile, guess what old-fashioned companies hitting an all-time high today? Hmm. Fairfax Financial Holdings. Oh, interesting. Okay. Interesting. So that uh, I think that's quite apropos to uh, what we just talked about and uh, you know what's what's transpired this year because I think a year or two ago Fairfax was seen as a dinosaur, and here we are. If you had actually owned it, you'd be quite happy as we sit oh, yeah, here that today. That's done well. I haven't kept tabs on that as close as I should have. You're right. Wow. Well, on that note, uh, thank you guys for a terrific year, and thanks to our audience for being loyal listeners. We've appreciated uh, you with us and uh, also all of your feedback ideas keep them coming uh, we'd love to discuss more of what's on your mind in the new year all the best goodbye for now thank you for listening to this week in intelligent investing brought to you exclusively by moi global the research-driven membership organization learn more at moiglobal.com